Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm joined by Sarah Maltby. She is Director of Attractions for York Archaeological Trust. She has overseen Jorvik Viking Center and their attractions for many years, and I am delighted to be speaking with her today about Jorvik Viking Center, a wonderful Viking museum in York, UK, which I will be visiting and doing some recording there uh, this February, actually, at the annual Jorvik Viking Festival. Sarah Maltby, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. So you are, of course, Director of Attractions for York Archaeological Trust and work very closely with Jorvik Viking Center. So for listeners who maybe aren't quite familiar, could you give us a brief history of Jorvik Viking Center and really how it came to be? Yeah, of course. So it all began in the 1970s, so quite a while ago now. And it all began, as I always like to say, as a hole in the ground. So York Archaeological Trust began digging on the site of Coppergate uh, during the 1970s, the early 1970s. And um, the excavation initially was only meant to take a few months. But when they started to go through um, the various layers, they realized quite quickly that the level of preservation here on this site was quite extensive because it's a, a waterlogged soil. Therefore, all the environmental remains that uh, existed from you know, thousands of years ago were still here. So that turned into a five-year excavation, which was unprecedented in York at the time, uh, which put a delay on the development here, which is uh, now a shopping centre. So it delayed the building of the shopping centre. But for five years, they excavated the site. And during those five years, about a million people came and saw the excavation and talked to the archaeologists. And, some, and a lot of them actually dug here as well. Um, and because of that interest, it was considered that maybe we should do something a bit more longer term. So the idea of Jorvik was created at that point. And during the years that we were excavating, we worked up the ideas uh, until 1984, when Jorvik opened for the first time. Um, so when we opened, and we still talk about this, the fact that Jorvik is on the very site of the excavation is one of the most important things that we have here. It is authentic. It is based on everything that we excavated. And we tell the story of the Vikings who lived here a thousand years ago. How interesting. Now, in terms of the Coppergate dig uh, that really sort of sparked the existence of the Viking Center, how did that come to be? Of course, it was this massive dig, a a huge day for archaeology. All sorts of archaeological contexts and and items relating to the Viking Age were found. But really, why did archaeologists decide to dig there? How did they first discover that there were elements of the city's Viking past beneath the ground? Well, um, we had to dig, essentially. They were developing a shopping center on this site. There was a sweet factory on this site, actually on the Coppergate site for many, many years, that factory was demolished and they were deciding to build in the 1980s um, when, the, when the shopping centre was, was meant to be here. That's exactly what they were trying to do, build, build a shopping centre. So in York, when any development is taking place, um, you have to excavate first. You have to un, um, look at the archaeology. And of course, nobody really expected, I think, to find the level of preservation that we did when we were digging. So that's why it, it went on for five years. And during that five years, we found, because of the waterlogged soils, you know, we found everything from the timbers of houses that were still here to shoes and textile and even grains of pollen and 
things in the soil that were we, we were later able to use to tell us what people ate, what they were made, what what weeds were growing in the city, all of that level of detail because of the level of preservation. And as I say, we didn't really, I think, when it first started, expect to to get that much information and to be here for five years. So um, it was unexpected. It was a huge bonus for us. And of course, it's where everything started. Um, and since that time, of course, archaeology doesn't stop. You, we, we continue investigating all the material that we excavated. So I talk about the, the pollen remains, the soil samples, and we continue to look at those now with new science. So that's the ex- another exciting thing that it doesn't stand still. Even though we excavated over 40 years ago, we are still working on that material to find out more. We're still doing more with the human remains that we found. We didn't find a lot of human remains. We found some. But of course, today's science, it's so much more progressive than it was in the 1970s and 80s. We were able to tell a lot more about who these people were, how they lived, what they ate, what they looked like even. Um, you know, that, that's the exciting thing that it's still changing and uh, developing. Yes. So in regards to some of the items that were found, uh, what are your personal favorite items that were found during the Coppergate dig? What sort of discoveries do you find most interesting? Um, I must admit, I like the things. I like the things that people wore. So we we have a lot of shoes, and for example, um, the level of detail on the shoes. We've got one shoe, for example, and we know the wearer had bunions. Now I find that fascinating. Um, we've got a sock that was mended over and over again. So people were thinking that these things were quite precious to them, obviously, and, and people were taking care of, uh, of these items. We have other items that were mended. So we have a pan, quite a large iron pan that um, got broken at various points, but it was mended again and again. Again, so people were recycling things and reusing things. So it wasn't a disposable culture. You know, people really took care of their objects. So it's being able to look at the objects and then find a story attached to them. That's what I find fascinating. I like the idea that these things were owned by real people, which they obviously were, and they had their own lives and they were doing different things, many things that, you know, perhaps we still do today and and, and living in very similar ways. Now, in terms of the actual history of Viking Age York, as sort of a, a brief overview, what can you tell us? And certainly what did the Coppergate dig tell us about how people lived and, and what they did for a living in Viking Age York? So the Vikings arrived um, in York in 866 AD. Um, we don't have a lot of evidence in terms of, of battle evidence or, or that kind of typical evidence, I guess, people uh, associate with Vikings. You know, we don't have swords, we don't have weapons, we don't have shields here. What we have is the everyday material. So we have houses. Um, We have two styles of houses, which is interesting in itself. So um, we have early houses that were wattle and daub houses. But then it seems, as you look at the archaeological record and as you go through the layers, it seems as though there was a wholesale clearance of those Wattland Orb houses around 960 AD. And after that period, we have timber buildings. So timber frames, some with what we think are cellars in them. And that date is also interesting because um, around 960 AD is when Eric Bloodaxe, who was the last Viking king in York, got thrown out of York, basically. So he got thrown out and he was eventually killed um, and defeated outside of York. And after that, after he left, there was probably a land, a change in land ownership. So that might be um, a reason why houses changed in style. So we have that 
evidence um, as well as the sort of in, environmental uh, evidence which tells you what people ate and um, then we have an awful lot of evidence of crafting so again I say it was an every it was evidence about everyday people um, and on this site on the Coppergate site we have a lot of evidence of craft working um, so we have objects uh, we have waste material um, we can see how things were being man- that things were being manufactured in these houses that we have the remains of so for example we have um, the remains of what we think was a blacksmith's shop, a blacksmith's workshop. We have material that he would have made, some beautiful things from uh, iron padlocks to tools used by other craftsmen. Um, But we also have waste products. We have ingots. Um, We have uh, some sort of evidence from the fires that he would have used. And then alongside that, we have evidence of the wood turner. So in these plots of, of land, you've got houses next door to each other with long backyards with all these different um pieces of evidence there that shows you what was being made on these particular plots. So the wood turner, for example, we have we have wooden bowls and cups, etc., from various from, from a number of the houses. But on this particular plot, we also have waste. So we have the cores from the wood turning activity, which is almost like a spinning top really. And we think that actually some of those wood cores were used as spinning tops. And perhaps you can imagine then the wood turner giving his waste products to the children of the of the town. To, to use as a plaything. So again, we've got all those stories, we've got the craftspeople, we've got the actual things they, they made, which you can see here at Jorvik, plus all the waste material as well. So there's a lot to learn, there's a lot to understand. Yes. So now my understanding is that during the Viking Age, York would have been a, I should say, York was a very important uh, trading hub, certainly a trading city where a merchant economy flourished there. Now, in relation to that, um, once the Coppergate dig was underway, did you really find some things that sort of reinforced that idea that York was indeed a trading city? Yes, certainly. Um, and it's something that we like to talk about at Jorvik now. So we do have a number of objects from across the Viking world. So we have, for example, we have a cowrie shell from the Red Sea, which must have been brought from the Red Sea. We have amber from the Baltic. We have ring pins from Ireland. So we, we're aware through these objects, um, whalebone, for example, um, well, 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 ivory, um, that we're aware that the Vikings traveled here and they also traveled from York elsewhere, taking their goods with them. So we understand from that material that York was a hub. It was the second largest settlement in Britain at the time. We had links with, certainly with Scandinavia, we had links with Ireland. One of the things we also talk about at Jorvik, which is an interesting um, topic, I think, is slavery. Now, slavery was part of Viking society. We know that through documentation. And we can assume from that, although we haven't got archaeological evidence, we can assume that because we had the links with Dublin and because we have the links with Ireland through the goods that we see coming in and, and out, that slaves perhaps were brought brought here from Dublin, which was a major sort of trade trade for slaves uh, port there. So we can talk about those things as well. So not necessarily directly in the archaeological record, but because we have archaeology that suggests that we have links with these other places as well. So the Anglo-Saxons would have been the people that primarily lived across uh, the whole of England during the Viking Age. Now I'm curious, 
in terms of the history of Viking York, um, would it have been a very diverse, ethnically speaking city in that uh, certainly people would have been coming there from all over the world? But I'm curious, did the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings, would they just have simply lived beside each other peaceably in, in York during the Viking Age? We think so. Ultimately, perhaps not at first, we don't really know. We talk a lot about the different languages that you would have heard in, in Jorvik at the time. And we do talk about it being a multicultural uh, town, a place where people did speak different languages. They had different religions, perhaps. And we talk about it being a melting pot for all of those things. So um, I think, yes, they did live alongside each other. They perhaps had different traditions. So uh, when the Vikings came, they perhaps had their pagan religion, whereas the Anglo-Saxons that lived here beforehand, they possibly Christianized. Uh, and when the Vikings arrived, we see this kind of assimilation and this merging of the two religions, for example. So one of the objects we have here is a coin die. So it's a, a piece of metal that was used to strike coins upon. Um, and on this particular coin die, which is very rare, actually, you don't find many of them because they're mainly they, they get destroyed. So moneyers used to destroy their coin die so people couldn't forge the, their, uh, the coinage after they finished using them. Anyway, so we have this coin die that has on it a Thor's hammer, so representing the pagan religion of the Vikings, and also a Christian cross on the same um, on the same coin die. So that to us uh, suggests that, you know, the religions were merging and people were beginning to live alongside each other. And perhaps the Vikings were turning to Christianity, but maybe retaining some of their paganism from previously. Now, what would you say is your favorite part about working for York Archaeological Trust, the organization that, of course, as we discussed earlier, led the famous Copper Gate dig back in the 70s and 80s, uh, where they discovered uh, just precedented amounts of history about how people lived during the Viking Age. I think it's just very much that. It's the discovery. You know, we are still digging. We're still digging in York. We're still finding new things. We're still researching the objects. We're still working with scientists and specialists on the objects that we, we found um, either at Coppergate or afterwards because we've done numerous, numerous digs in York after it. So it's that idea of discovery, finding something, finding out something new, the stories of people that lived here. Um, I live in York. Uh, it's my home home city. So to think about the people that lived here before me uh, and what you can tell about them through the objects that we keep on finding and then keep on finding more about is, is very exciting. Now, I, of course, will be traveling to York myself in just a few months and interviewing some of the great scholars there about the city's Viking history. But what kinds of attractions can people look forward to seeing at Jorvik Viking Center? Well, if you come to the center, um, it's it's an experience, I would say. So when you actually come into Jorvik, you will see a representation of the archaeological excavation underneath a glass floor. So you can walk over it and, and discover for yourself what we found there. And then after that, you go on to our, what we call our ride, essentially. Um, but don't worry, it's not like a roller coaster. Basically, you go on the ride and it will take you through a reconstruction of the Viking um, city based on everything that we found, as I've talked about today. And then after you come off there and, it, and you will be, it's, it's not just the sights, it's the smells, it's the sounds of the Viking city. So you should be fully enveloped within the in Viking city of, of Jorvik as you're going through the reconstruction. But after that, you will see objects that we excavated, some thousand objects, which is only a proportion of, of the objects that we found here at Coppergate. 
but you will see them on display. And you will also meet our Vikings. So we have many Vikings who will be here in costume, um, who know everything there is to know about uh, Jorvik and the Coppergate excavations. And they are here to help all of our visitors understand just what we found and what life was like in Jorvik a thousand years ago. And that's certainly what I love about Jorvik Viking Center is it, it really is almost like you're traveling back in time and experiencing the Viking city. I mean, I, I think I remember, you know, watching a video or reading something where is it true that some of your uh, museum staff are even trained to speak certain words in, in Old Norse, which was the language of the Vikings? Yes, that's right. Yeah, we work with the university here in York uh, with specialists at the university, and we did some training for um, for our Vikings that they can now speak in uh, Old English and Old Norse. Actually, they have two languages, um, and they, they will be able to speak in those languages to all our visitors. And we train them in all sorts of things, from null binding, which is the Viking knitting, through to uh, stage fighting. So we do, at the Viking Festival, for example, we do um, reenact some battles, and we, we teach children how to, how to form up in, format, in Viking formation. So there's all sorts of things that we teach them. Uh, we even have Vikings who can play Viking Age musical instruments, and they will do that as people visit as well. Wow, how interesting. Well, Sarah Maltby, it has been a, an absolute pleasure of mine speaking with you today. And I know everyone listening will have enjoyed this interview because we are all very fascinated about certainly the Viking history of England and the city of York is something which I've talked about. Uh, in past as well. But thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. You're very welcome. And uh, we look forward to welcoming as many people as possible in the next few years. Thank you all so much for listening today to the History of Vikings. I do hope that you will check out Jorvik Viking Center. Uh, I will put links in the description below, as well as uh, come to Jorvik Viking Festival in February of 2019. Uh, you will, of course, get the chance to meet me, and, uh, say hi, and uh, enjoy the rich Viking history of the city of York with me. 